and he will make it plain. We open the Word of God today to Psalm 73. As we think about the troubled one, the troubled one. Life is not always fair. Ask the single mother who must seek to support her child on a meager income while perhaps her ex-husband refuses to pay child support and lives without much of a burden. Life is not always fair. Ask the student who is equally qualified with another for some honor, but in the end is overlooked because the other student's family had influence in the school administration. Life is not always fair. Ask the athlete who works hard and disciplines herself to compete in the Olympics, but then falls in the final competition and loses her Olympic bid forever. Life is not always fair. Ask the married spouse who is faithful to the vows taken at the altar, only later to discover that his or her partner did not take them so seriously. Life is not always fair, and the list could go on and on and on. I have purposely selected some examples this morning uh, that are beyond what I know of within the congregation. I could give you examples out of this congregation that I know about this morning that would illustrate the same fact that life is not always fair. And even we Christians can become troubled by the inequities and injustices of life's course of experiences. Some have become so troubled that they've allowed their faith to be undermined and they've turned their back on God. Others live with a tortured question mark over their lives that asks, why live for what is right? Those who don't concern themselves with what is right seem to come out better in the end anyway. Do you ever feel that way? Asaph, the writer of Psalm 73, expresses the fact that that was exactly how he felt. He confesses his troubled heart, but then proceeds to tell us how he came to tranquility in his heart. The difference was how he came to view life's circumstances. The way that he came to evaluate the things that he saw and experienced. Viewing life's circumstances with eternal values dispels heart trouble and develops heart tranquility. The secret is viewing life's circumstances with eternal values. When you and I pick up the lens of eternal values and we begin to look through them, it brings life into sharp focus. The lens that we're talking about are found in the Word of God. It became apparent to me over the last little while that my arms, though exceedingly long, beyond the average, 38 inches here, 
Try to find a shirt on sale for that, will you? That though my arms are very long, they were becoming too short for the focal distance that I needed to read something. And so I went to a doctor and found that I needed a prescription for bifocals. And about a month ago, got into bifocals for the very first time. Uh, as the old story says, I needed a stepladder to get up the curb when I first got them. No, it wasn't really quite that bad. But I have been amazed at the new lease on life that I feel since I've gotten them. I can now see again. And I'm able to read at a comfortable distance. All the difference was made in the lenses that I put before my eyes. Apart from those lenses, things were distorted and out of focus. But now I am able to see and see well. And so it is with life circumstances. If we don't have the right lenses on, things get out of focus and twisted. But when we get the right lenses in place, lenses that are found in the Word of God, then we begin to see sharply and clearly what life is all about. We need to learn to view life's circumstances with eternal values, so that then our heart trouble at the injustices and inequities of life will be set aside, and we will have heart tranquility despite the unfairness of life. I want you to notice that the psalmist, first of all, talks about the source of his trouble. It was, he says very clearly, a false perception. He talks about this beginning especially in verse 2. Verse 1 is sort of a statement that introduces the positive side. He says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but... (laughs) But as for me... And now he begins to open up himself so that we might see what he was experiencing. It was heart trouble. And he tells us the source of it. A false perception of things. It seemed very real to him. But it was a false perception. You know, the general instinct of most people is that God should and does reward good people with tangible evidence of good things. And at the same time that God punishes the wicked by withholding good things and giving them trouble. That's the general instinct of most people. Is that true? If you take that idea and apply it to life... It can cause you to become troubled. It did the psalmist. His observation was that, in fact, the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. And that ran ran counter to what he thought his theology ought to be. And so he tells us about how the wicked prosper. Now, the fact is that the wicked don't always prosper. But it's also a fact that they prosper more often than we might care to admit. He says in verse 3, I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Then he begins to describe the prosperity. No pains in their death. He says their death comes easily. It is basically painless. They are protected. They can afford the medicine. They can afford the anesthetic. They can afford the hospital. 
He says their body is fat. Now here that's a complimentary <laughs> statement. He is saying that the condition of their bodies was that they were like well-fed, sleek animals. They were not starving. In verse 5, they are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. He says basically there are just fewer troubles for those who are prosperous and rich. Their troubles are fewer, their advantages are greater. In verse 6, pride is their necklace. Instead of pride being seen as a character defect, in fact, they wear it as an ornament of their lives. Their pride is worn with boasting. He says, the garment of violence covers them. In other words, they employ violence to get their way, and they get by with it. Their method of operation is to oppress others that might threaten their position of prosperity. And because of the power of their prosperity, they get by with it. Their eyes, their eye bulges from fatness, he says. The imaginations of their heart run riot. The idea is here that they are bold in their countenance and in their imagination of what they want to do. They see few limits on what they can accomplish. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They've set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. What a picture of a tongue marching throughout the earth. Can you just see that picture of a tongue walking around? Their mouth they've set against the heavens, he says. <clears throat> In other words, the way they speak, their verbiage, their language, reflects their disdain for other people and also for God himself. They are self-assertive, self-promoting. And they get by with it. Therefore his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. The idea is here that their followers acclaim them. The crowds that come around, their fan clubs that applaud, flatter them. Literally this says, the people turn to them. Water in abundance is drained by them. A very difficult phrase to try to understand. Some think it has to do with camels coming to an oasis and drinking all of the water so that there is none left for others who might have needs. The point is they squander it all upon themselves without a single thought. It reminds me of a story that one of the men told me of a, a man out in California who lives in an area where water has to be very tightly rationed. But he is very wealthy, and so he was not afraid to water his whole estate every day while others had to ration. He was willing to pay the fines, and he did to the tune of $30,000 a month for water for his estate. Some of the civic leaders went to him and appealed to him. Well, he could afford to pay any kind of fine they would levy against him. And when I think of uh, the water in abundance being drained by them, he came to mind. Because that's what he was doing. Draining the water from everybody else to keep his grass green. 
Well, eventually they figured out a compromise plan, and he's getting now recycled sewage water trucked in to his uh, estate, and that's what he's using. I imagine his grass is very green now. <laughs> you see, he's describing the wealthy, the prosperous here, as having crowds that follow them around and adore them and applaud them, and they squander everything that they have and leave others with nothing. Verse 11, and they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Interference from God, no interference from God, so it seems to them, causes them to mock the idea of God's existence. And they say, what does God know? Does he really have any concern with human affairs? Now remember, he's describing what he sees the wicked like those who are prosperous. And he says, Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease they have increased in wealth. That's the final summation of it, verse 12. Or as we say, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And the psalmist was troubled by this, because these who were prosperous and who were wicked seem to have no problems in life. What really got him was the next part of the psalm, verses 13 and 14, that while the wicked were prospering, the righteous suffered. He says, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. The psalmist says, in contrast to the wicked I'm talking about, I have tried to lead a clean life. I have maintained my integrity. My actions have been righteous. I have been innocent from doing the things that the wicked have. And yet God has failed to reward me. And my troubles seem to multiply while the wicked get away with everything. And so he has a lot of heart trouble. And if there is a person here this morning who hasn't faced that same kind of heart trouble at some time in life, he hasn't thought very much about what life is about. And so we have his pouring out of his trouble. His heart was agitated with what he saw. But that brings us now to the second part of the psalm, and a happier part, as he talks about the solution to trouble. He had a false perception of things, actually, as he looked at the wicked. He didn't realize it, but that false perception gave him that heart trouble. Now he gets a right perspective on things. He says in verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I should have betrayed the generation of thy children. Interesting comment by the psalmist. He says, I have restrained myself from speaking this way among the people of God. Because I had I done that, I would have betrayed them. He expresses here self-restraint rather than complete uninhibited transparency with others. Folks, sometimes that is appropriate. In some contexts, an expression of what we're struggling with a careless expression of that, can lead others to sin. 
Now, I strongly believe in transparency. I believe that we ought to be open with other people. But the fact is that we have to exercise caution in selecting the sphere where we air our troubled thoughts. That's what the psalmist is saying. He says, if I had said these things among the people, then I would have betrayed them. So what did he do? He did what all of us must do. He poured out his complaint before God. The psalmist found recovery. He found a solution for his heart troubles. It was gaining the right perspective and laying aside that false perception that he had regarding the prosperity of the wicked. Now, where did he get this right perspective? From God? He says, when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not, what? Carry it to the Lord in prayer. And that's exactly what the psalmist did. His heart was so agitated that he went before God finally. And he poured out his complaint to the Lord. How often our hearts are troubled because we fail to take our concerns to the Lord. And there to examine them in the light of his word. Put the lenses on that are right. So that we can see the issue that's troubling us with eternal values. It may be that this morning you are deeply embroiled in some kind of bewilderment. There is a question mark that's eating up your life. You are wondering about something that's giving you heart trouble. What do you do about it? The fact is you can't share that with everybody. Maybe there is someone you can share it with and ought to share it with. But there is one for whom you should, uh, for sure, with whom you should share it, and that is the Lord. The psalmist said, It was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. There are some of us today that need to get to the sanctuary of God quick. Because our hearts are troubled. And if we don't deal with that, it is possible we will turn our backs on the faith. It's not that there is no answer. It's that we haven't yet sought the answer in the right place, or maybe with the right attitude. He says, I went into the sanctuary of God. Now, he may have meant the temple, literally, or he may be using some poetic expression, meaning that he got in touch with the Lord. The point is for us that you and I need to bring our troubles to him and lay them out. Then notice what he came to grasp. He says, I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. See what he's saying? He's saying, I went before God and I laid out my concerns and I told him what the wicked are like and how they prosper and how I've suffered as a righteous person. And then God gave me some new glasses. Then I began looking through lenses of eternal values. 
And I saw the end, the destiny of the wicked, he says. My friend, that brings it all into perspective real fast. If we examine only the good times, yes, the wicked may seem to prosper. But the fact is that those times, lifetime, has an end. The psalmist goes on to say, Surely thou dost set them in slippery places. Thou dost cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. And so it is. The wicked may boast, he may parade around the earth with his fan clubs applauding him. He may live out his schemes and think, what does God know? But then the plane crashes. Then there's the car accident. Then there's the drug overdose. Then there's the shooting. And like that, it's over. It's all over. And there is sudden terror. And there are slippery places. And there is destruction. And the wicked are utterly swept away by God. That's the end of the wicked. So you see, the psalmist began to look at life not just through his own eyes, but through the lenses that God gave him in the sanctuary. And he said, I was troubled until I saw the real destiny of the wicked. And he said, that gave me the ability to evaluate properly what I had falsely perceived before. I may be talking to someone today who would fall into the category of one who has mocked God. You have felt that you can just go on your way, and what does God know anyway? He's never interfered up till now. Let me tell you what a fool does. A fool says, God doesn't care. There is no God, and I'll live the way I want to live. And I'll continue to prosper. And I'll double my accounts, and I'll build bigger barns. And I will get richer and more powerful. And I will live long. And then suddenly, in the middle of the night, life ends. And God says, you fool. Now, who will all of those things belong to? Because they're no longer yours. That's the destiny of the man who mocks God. My friend, if that's your destiny today, I plead with you to no longer mock him, but to repent of that and to turn before it's too late, before the end comes, and receive Jesus Christ as the Savior that you need to deliver you from that destiny. The psalmist was tremendously affected by what happened in the sanctuary when he got alone with God. 
In the first place, it changed his own sense of security. Notice in verses 21 through 24. When my heart was embittered, and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before thee. That's when he was still troubled. Nevertheless, he says, I am continually with thee. Thou hast taken hold of my right hand. With thy counsel thou wilt guide me, and afterward receive me to glory. The psalmist had the right lenses on now, eternal values, and it changed his own sense of security. He says here, in essence, I belong to God. Nothing else matters. Can you say that today? In fact, it is he, not the wicked, who is truly prosperous, as he says here. It is the wicked, not himself, who are on the slippery places. Earlier in the psalm, he said in verse 2, My feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. Now he sees, in fact, it's not his steps that are about to slip. It's the wicked. His whole sense of security has changed. He sees himself as living solidly, not slippery. He sees himself as having security. He says, God has taken hold of my right hand. And he says, through my life, God will guide me with his counsel. That's the eternal values, the right lenses. God will guide me with his counsel so that I'll be delivered from this kind of heart trouble in the future. And he says, afterward, when the end comes for me, he says, it's not destruction. It's not being swept away. It's not sudden terror. But he says, afterward, God, you will receive me to glory. This word receive is the same word that's used of Enoch in Genesis. The same word used of Elijah when he was translated and taken by God. The very same Hebrew verb. He says, oh God, you will take me up to glory when the end comes. Oh, what a sense of security came over the psalmist when he began to view life with eternal values. He said, the most important thing is that I belong to God. Nothing else matters. But I notice also that there is a change in his sense of values. Look at verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. That really wasn't where he was before. He was troubled because he had so little on earth. And the wicked seemed to have so much. But a change has taken place in his values. He says, and besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. His change of values are these. He says, God belongs to me now. Nothing else counts. His security is that he belongs to God. But his new value system is that God belongs to him. 
And because he has God, everything else is devalued around him. He is willing to lose prosperity. He is willing even to hand it over to the wicked. He still possesses God. And God is his portion, that is, his inheritance. And so I ask all of us the question, what things on earth have greater value to us than God? Oh, we reply, nothing. I agree with the psalmist. I desire nothing on earth besides God. Oh, what a noble statement that is from us. And yet there are tests. Tests like, when I come to decide how I spend my time, or what I'm going to do, where does God fit into that? When it comes to how I use my money, where I give it, how I spend it, where does God fit into that? When it comes to my career and what I'm going to do, or the decisions I'm going to make about a promotion, or an opportunity here or there, where does God fit into that? May we be able to say truly, there is nothing on earth that I desire above God. God is mine. God is mine, and there is nothing else that counts besides that. Oh, I want to make right decisions about my money, about my time, about my career, about my family. But nothing before God. Nothing before God. He is my highest, most prized treasure. He is my greatest value. We might ask ourselves this question, what are we willing to sacrifice for? Because you see, it is what we're willing to sacrifice for that determines what is most prized to us. We inevitably choose to give up what is less valuable for that which is more valuable. Where does God fit into that picture in our decisions? Isn't it so easy because of the materialistic world we live in to give up God quick? And to choose instead of God other things that are of greater earthly advantage that will satisfy our desires and our wants now? Oh, but folks, we need to get to the sanctuary of God and get some new glasses. <clears throat> we need to get some lenses of eternal values and realize that if we have God, there's nothing else that counts above Him. The summation of the psalmist is in verses 27 and 28. Behold, those who are far from thee will perish. Thou hast destroyed all those who are unfaithful to thee. The word for unfaithful there means unfaithfulness in the sense of marriage, adulterous to thee. Those who have gone a-whoring, as it were, searching after other gods, 
Those who are far from God, he says, are doomed. They are the ones who have turned their back on God. They have walked away from God. They are those who are unbelieving. He says they are doomed. They are damned. They will perish. That's one summation. The other one is in verse 28. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all thy works. Those who are near to God are blessed, he says. Those who have made the Lord their refuge, who have come to him in a time of need and have hidden themselves in him, those who have believed in him, who have turned to him, who have found in him a hiding place, a refuge, those who are therefore near to God. Every person listening to me right now is either far from God or near to God. And eternity hangs in the balance. If you are one who is far from God, then listen to the warning of God's word. The end is coming with sudden terror, and you will perish unless you turn around and come near to God in faith and trust and repentance. And then you will be blessed. And then you will have God to guide you through this life with his counsel. And afterward, when life is done, God will take you to glory, to heaven, to his presence. When you and I view life with eternal values, it will dispel our heart trouble. And it will develop heart tranquility, even in the midst of the unfairness of life. This psalm is like a lovely necklace. The last verse attaches to the very first verse, really to make a complete chain. And what the psalmist says in this necklace is that those who are wicked may appear to prosper in life, but in the end... They lose it all and die. Those who are righteous may experience suffering in life, but they have God, and God has them. And in the end, they gain everything and live forever. So may we live with eternity's values in view. Would you bow with me, please? If you're struggling in your spiritual walk, if you sense that you are far off from God, please know that he loves you. God does not delight in the death of those who are lost. God has so loved you that he's given his son for your sake. The Lord Jesus came into the world and died for you, that you might be reconciled to God. 
If you would like to know more about that and how you can come near to God, I want to encourage you to check on your registration form that little box that says, I would like to talk with someone. And someone will be in touch with you this week to talk about your own spiritual struggle, the heart trouble that you're sensing within. Give us that opportunity, won't you, to talk with you personally by checking that box. Oh, Father, I pray that today all of us will go to the heavenly optician and that we will obtain the kinds of lenses that will give us eternal values with which to view life. And may that bring into sharp focus some of the issues that are now giving us heart trouble. May there be peace develop as we learn to look at life as you do, to see it from your perspective, the right perspective. Set our lives, I pray, upon the firm foundation of your word, that we may not slip or stumble but may testify with faith and certainty, the Lord is good to me. The Lord is good to his people. In Jesus' name, amen.